The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Today we're going to begin in Daniel chapter 7. Last week we covered chapters 1 through 6 so quickly. I was faced with a dilemma. I don't know how well I have done at solving it. It was taking um, many more pages than I had possible, possible time to go through and condensing it and doing it in a clear way. A clear way. I, I just want to remind every, everyone that um, if you don't get everything here or if you want more, you can go to deroshi-meyer.org go to the resource button in the top right hand side go down to Old Testament survey find which book you want more info on and click on that and Lord willing this next week the Lamentations lectures will be up then the Daniel's, Daniel lectures will be up everything that I've done in here since the uh, start of the Old Testament survey is all up online and Lord willing will be through the Old Testament survey by Christmas and then with that is all the notes that I give my students. Um, so it's, it's just there for your use, if it would help you. Let's pray. Precious Lord, I thank you that you have allowed us now the next hour to wade through some beautiful, beautiful material in your word, material that is designed to heighten hope in your kingdom and in your Messiah, a Messiah that we now know his name. His name is Jesus. Yahweh saves, and we delight and rest in him. I pray that our hearts would grow in confidence in his great work, in his kingdom defeating and his kingdom building work. Grant me grace as an agent, as a mouthpiece, that I might speak clearly and truthfully. Help us walk through even some difficult texts today for our good and for your glory. Thank you that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus and that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. Help us be bold to proclaim the good news. Our God reigns in Christ over all sickness and over all pain for those who will but believe. Move in this place today. In Christ I pray. Amen. All right. The book of Daniel into two key divisions. God's sovereign control in the present, which was our focus last week, just walking through the stories of the... Four guys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the latter three who we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're the four main characters in this book. And now we move into the more interesting part of the book, a part filled with visions, a part that looks more like uh, Lord of the Rings at times than the Waltons, which has been a go-to family movie night on Fridays. You have the Walton's World, 
and you have Lord of the Rings. Um, and as we enter into this, these visions, what you get is images, symbols, monsters, and men. And they're interacting, and it is the men, those who are made in the image of God rather than like beasts that find themselves rising to the surface, for it is the men who truly portray what humans are. The men who are aligned with the Son of Man, who is ultimately Jesus. Last week we looked at Nebuchadnezzar's statute dream. Remember, he was the head of gold. Then there was a chest and bronze chest and arms of silver, uh, legs of bronze and feet of clay and iron. And all of them represented kingdoms. And Nebuchadnezzar was that head of gold. That is, the Babylonian Empire was the first kingdom. Now we're going to look at the next two uh, unveilings, as it were, of understanding time and reign in the book of Daniel. The vision of the four beasts and the Son of Man, the vision of the ram. So here's where we left off last week. Chapter 2 37 and 38 gave us clarity in the interpretation of the dream. This is what we read. You, O king, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. You, O king, are the head of gold. But then we read in verse 44, that in the days of all the other kings and just represented in this statue of all the kingdoms of mankind, a day will come, it says in verse 44 of chapter 2, when the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Whereas all the kingdoms of men, all the powers on earth ultimately come down, God will raise up a key kingdom. It is God's kingdom that will never end for all time. So now we come to chapter 7. And you'll see its unearthliness very quickly. Look there with me. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he woke up, wrote down the dream, and told the sum of the matter. This is what he said. I saw in my vision by night, for, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the sea. And now what we're going to see is four sea monsters that come out, each one looking different. Four parts of a statue, four sea monsters. I think there's a parallel. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up off the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Now remember what I said last week. Nebuchadnezzar was beastly. His sin led him to act like a beast so that he was even eating grass. And then all of a sudden he came to his senses, surrendered his heart, and he returned to manliness. No longer a beast, but like a man, like an image of God. 
pointing to God, reflecting, resembling, representing God, finally. And we saw it in the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth. At the end of his life, he's giving testimony to the greatness of the God of Daniel above all other gods. So he changes this beast, had its wings plucked off, and it was lifted up off the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. The mind of a man was given to it, and behold, now another beast. Well, if the first If the head of the statue was a kingdom and all the other parts are kingdoms, it gets us thinking that the next beast is now kingdom two. A second beast, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. Sound familiar? Iron, shins and toes. It had iron teeth. It was different from all the beasts. Sorry, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns, ten toes, ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in the horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things." I think we've just had a depiction of the kingdoms. That's what's going on in my mind anyway. But we want to wait for Daniel's interpretation because Daniel doesn't leave it up to us, by God's grace, to just determine what we will from these visions. He actually unpacks the meaning for us after he gets them. Second part of this vision While all these sea monsters are arising from the sea, something else is happening up above. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. He's the Ancient of Days. The one who was always. The court sat in judgment, the books were opened, and as I looked, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, see, these are happening at the exact same time. There's the Ancient of Days seated on his throne, and there is these sea creatures. And this horn, one of ten, that's making great boasts, And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So there are these kingdoms that are going to last for some time, but not forever. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to this Son of Man, from the Ancient of Days, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now Daniel sees this, and it does something in his soul. It's a little different if you're watching Lord of the Rings on you know, a 26-incher versus uh, Keith Evelyn's basement, and you've got the wall view, right? You're, you're brought into the story more. He, he is sleeping, he's in the story, he's seeing it, and it, it does something in his soul. My spirit within me was anxious. The visions in my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there, and I said, asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation. What was all this about? So we have a winged lion, a bear, a winged shepherd, a horrible beast with ten horns, a single horn that rises up, and then the Ancient of Days gives dominion to the Son of Man. Four different elements. And if we're right that the lion is Babylon, what does that say about everything else? This vision isn't going to unpack any of the other beasts very much, but it will let us know more about the fourth kingdom. So, I keep losing my page. Tell us the interpretation. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. So in the statue vision, we were told, you, O king, are the head of gold, and the three other body parts are kingdoms. Now we're told that the three, the, the four beasts are kings. Kingdoms have kings. And already we were told that the head of gold is both Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon has a king. All the kingdoms of the earth will have kings. And these beasts represent the kings. They don't look like men. They look like beasts, suggesting they're not imaging God like they're supposed to. They're trying to replace Him rather than represent Him. So these four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Okay, I'm tracking the interpretation. What I read was four beasts, now I'm told four kings. Then I read one like the Son of Man receives all authority in heaven and on earth, dominion, glory, kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. But now in the interpretation, what I read is the saints of the Most High are those that receive the kingdom. So is the Son of Man a person, or is the Son of Man a people? That would be the next question. But we're dealing with the fourth kingdom. We're dealing with this kingdom here. Now, every kingdom needs a king. Look with me down in verse 23, the long speech. As for the fourth beast, the one with the horn, 
There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, out of his kingdom ten kings shall arise. So the beast himself is a king who has ten kings that flow from him. And another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. So there's going to be this tension between the great horn who's speaking mighty boasts and the saints who have been given the kingdom. And he shall, the saints of the Most High shall wear out and shall think, sorry, and he, namely this, the one speaking the words against the Most High, and the one wearing out the saints of the Most High, shall think to change the times and the law. He's going to be a law unto himself. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But... The court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away. His kingdom will not last. Just like in the first vision, even though, it's not on the screen, even though the iron was strong, it still will not last. And the stone, that small stone that grows into a mountain, will ultimately crush. His dominion will be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And then we read in verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given, here we hear it again, to the people of the saints of the Most High. Now, what it depends on what year of a Bible you have that what 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 comes next? What pronoun comes next? Whose kingdom? His kingdom. Okay, if you have an older ESV, it says something else. There. Mine still says there. But it does have a footnote. I wish they wouldn't have changed it. In the Hebrew text, it's explicitly his. His. And that is significant. Because the people who receive the kingdom have a king. And the king, this son of man, is... Now endowed with all the authority of heaven, the Ancient of Days gives him all authority, and then he has a people who walk in, live in, celebrate in the authority of this king. So it says, His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And that's where my footnote comes, and it says, instead of them, it says, or his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now that him, I think, is significant because the Most High, if the Most High is God, that is, uh, God the Father, the ancient or Yahweh, who's now bestowing his... Yahweh is the Ancient of Days, I think, and he's now bestowing authority on one like a son of man, who is a son of Adam, displaying perfectly the image of God in and of himself. He's going to represent, reflect, and resemble God perfectly. He's going to embody all the authority of heaven in and of himself. And because all these other kingdoms... Did it again? Because all these other kingdoms have kings, it makes sense to me 
that the kingdom of God would also have a king whose name is Jesus. Now, when we come to the Gospels, what's intriguing is that Son of Man is the most common title Jesus puts on his own mouth to describe who he is. Let's look at some of these texts. Jesus, the Son of Man. After giving his life as a ransom for many, Jesus would come on the clouds of heaven and establish his kingdom in power. Now, just have your Bibles open still to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, who was given all the authority from the ancient of days. Here's how Jesus talks. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just in light of where we're going later in the day, just remember for many. It's an echo of Isaiah 53. For many. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. I am. I am. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Could he be more clear in identifying himself with Daniel 7? God exalted Jesus through the cross event, giving him all authority in heaven and on earth. That's how Jesus talks in Matthew 28, right after his resurrection. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now make disciples of all nations. And when we read Daniel 7, he's given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So what does he say? Make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. He's now become the authority. He is standing as I am Yahweh, perfectly imaging His Father and embodying the kingdom of God in and of Himself. All authority in heaven and on earth is His. Authority to save and judge, to bestow life, to bestow death. Son of man in the New Testament. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, Jesus says... When you've lifted Him up, that is, when you've crucified Him, then you will know that I am He. That He is not actually there. It just says, then you will know that I am. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but just speak as the Father taught me. Matthew 13, the Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. That's very interesting. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father who has ears. He who has ears, let him hear. Those who identify with this Son of Man's rule will rule with Him. So the saints are given the kingdom. But the Son of Man is given the kingdom. And the saints are incorporated into the Son of Man. That's what I'm proposing. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, disciples, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. A reconstituted people of God, building off of the twelve disciples. Revelation 3.21, The one who conquers, I will grant him. Will you be among him? The one who conquers... 
The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Empowered to rule with Christ. Daniel and Jesus envisioned a future resurrection unto life and death. Here's Daniel chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who is charged over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, radical, intense, end times tribulation. Right now, pockets of tribulation all over the globe. The New Testament talks about it that way, using the exact word, tribulation. But then it reserves an adjective for the ultimate end. It's called the great tribulation. So we see pockets of end times judgment, pockets of end times challenge. The two things that we're told about the Antichrist in Daniel chapter 8 are that the spirit of the spirit of the Antichrist is that he'll be a false teacher and he'll be a persecutor. And both of those are already operative today. 1 John 2.18 says, You've heard that the Antichrist is coming. I tell you, many Antichrists have already arisen among us. This is how we know it's the last hour. And that little phrase, the last hour, is straight out of Daniel in the Greek translation. So, The great prince who has charge over your people, there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever." Resurrection, that's what Daniel is anticipating. Some to everlasting life, some to everlasting judgment. Here's Jesus associates this reality with the Son of Man. He has given authority, He has given Him, that is God, has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, an hour is coming, The latter days, that phrase, shows up all throughout the Old Testament and is picked up by the New Testament authors. For example, in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, In former times, God spoke to us through His prophets, but in these last days, latter days, end times, He's spoken to us through His Son. Hebrews 1 verse 1. Or Acts chapter 2 verse 17. You're seeing Pentecost work its way out. All the Jews are gathering. Peter stands up and he says, this is what Joel said would happen in the latter days. What's intriguing is that only in Daniel, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when the Greek translator is working through the Old Testament, only in Daniel does he consistently translate The instances of the latter days, end times, plural, he consistently translates it the last hour. The last hour. And John, both in John's Gospel and in 1 John, picks up on that. I think he's got his Bible open. You're all using English translations, at least probably most of you. Well, John's preaching from his own native tongue translation. He's preaching from the Greek text 
of the Old Testament. He just has it open, and he's saying, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming? That's how you know it's the last hour? Jesus is talking the same way here. In the use of Son of Man linked up with with hour, that focuses this in on Daniel, of all other books, because it's the only book that uses end times language and says hour. Not last minute, last hour. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Can you see the echo? Daniel 12 here in John 5. For those who want life, Jesus' call and promises are sure. Everyone, John 6, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's hope. So when I come and I'm reading Daniel, what I see is that the kingdom is given to the Son of Man. When I read the interpretation, the kingdom is given to the saints of the Most High. But the, saint, but the, but the already we've been set up in the book that kingdoms have kings, and then we read His kingdom. In 727, his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And so it suggests to me that already here in chapter 7, there's enough going on that would suggest that the saints are not to be equated with the Son of Man, but they're identified with the Son of Man. That the saints are indeed ruling with their king, who is the Son of Man. And later in the book, Daniel 9 Daniel's going to call this Son of Man figure the Anointed One, or the Messiah. He's just going to use it straight up, the Messiah. And all of a sudden, that brings all kind of baggage that takes us right back to David. And the promise is given to David that he would have a son on the throne of a kingdom that would last forever. So I'm reading this vision of Daniel 7, climaxing in the Ancient of Days, giving dominion to the Son of Man. Now it's not just God's kingdom... I'm reading this as God's kingdom in Christ. That's how we're supposed to envision this. It's the kingdom that will be bound up in the Messiah and those identified with Him. And only if you identify with Him will you find refuge. All other kingdoms of the earth will be destroyed. And if you're following any of the other kings as the ultimate powers in the world, you will be destroyed with them. Because kingdoms and kings get destroyed together. So you want to align yourself with the right kingdom and the right king. And if you do, there's amazing hope in this book. All the darkness that Israel is living in, separated in exile, feeling like God is distant, like He's forgotten His promises to the previous generations, like His kingdom is no more. There's no king. There's no land. There's no temple. There's no presence of His Spirit. The enemies abound. They are slaves. And all of a sudden, Daniel speaks. There is hope. If you feel broken, there is hope. If you feel like you're in darkness, open your eyes. The light is there. It hasn't penetrated everything. But it's coming. It's coming. Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of King Belshazzar, another vision. After that, 
which appeared to me at first. So we come now to a new vision. A vision in chapter 8 that's going to have new animals and new kingdoms. All of a sudden, this one's going to unpack more clearly, actually define for us the kingdoms. Just like the first one said, You, O king, are the head of gold. And it declared, it's the kingdom of God. And then it's the kingdom of God worked out through the Son of Man. Now we're going to have greater definition given. So, we have some weird things that happen up front. I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the capital, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. So we got another beast. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. So this is a beastly kingdom, I'm already thinking, that is overcoming all the other kingdoms of man that are on the earth. He's expanding. This kingdom is expanding over the globe. He did as he pleased, and he became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with two horns. So, two horns. Each horn in the previous vision was a kingdom. But this is a two-horned single beast. So there was a beast was a kingdom, and then from it came out ten beasts in the previous vision, ten kingdoms, but they all grew out of the one kingdom. Now we have a single kingdom that has two prongs. And up rises the goat. So the goat came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him... Come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and he struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, and he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the winds of the heavens. Out of One of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of the transgression, and it will... Throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another one, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over the sanctuary? All of this happening during the third beast's embodiment, I think. And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its full sight. And Daniel is awestruck. 
Now, we've already been set up. So at the very least, what we can say is, well, there's a ram and a goat, and I think they represent what? Two kingdoms. And the second kingdom is going to throw down this previous kingdom that has two horns, two parts. Let's look at the interpretation. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ulai, and called, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. He's standing next to Gabriel, the messenger of God. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Same thing happens to the Roman soldiers when they see the angels at the tomb. They go as if dead. What would happen if they saw the real glory, not just his messengers? But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. Behold, I will make known to you what will be in the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram you saw, oh, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So in the history, historical flow, we have to read the ram as something other than the first kingdom. This vision doesn't start with the first kingdom because we're already told this is Medo-Persia that will be trumped then by another animal, the goat. So, that's not all that we hear. The two-part is the Medes and the Persians, and then the goat is the king of Greece. So it's the king of Greece that is the all-powerful one who throws down this king, Alexander the Great, and those that follow him. As for the horn that was broken in place, of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from Alexander's nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of boldface, one who understands riddles, shall arise. All of this is happening in the midst of these two kingdoms. Which means we're not even dealing with this kingdom at this time, and we're also not touching this kingdom. In this book, nothing is mentioned, no no texts tell us how to interpret the fourth, uh, fourth part of the statue or the fourth beast. Never is it named. What it suggests to me, though, is that because we move from Babylon to the Medes and the Persians to Greece, the very next kingdom is Rome. And it's during Rome that the Messiah Jesus actually rises. This is when His, the kingdom of God, is set up on earth, and Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. It's the Romans who are one of the instruments that bring about the death of Jesus. So... All of these kingdoms, though, we have to see as pointing to so much more, I think. All of them have a common feature. They are beastly. 
like the serpent in the garden rather than like Adam. Adam is supposed to be the imager of God. The serpent, beast, is hostile to God's kingdom plan ultimately to be through people, humans. So the kingdoms of men, all of them give us a picture of what the serpent was like in the garden and what the serpent ultimately is like, that is the devil, as he's working out his ugly influences on earth. So at the end of chapter 8, there's the clearest portrayal of evil embodied in this king, false teaching and persecution. But what I think is important, at least as I'm understanding it, at the end of chapter 8, the portrayal that would look, that some interpret as the Antichrist, is anti-God, but he's growing up in the midst of the third kingdom. Because we haven't been told anything about this kingdom. Yet. Now we go to chapter 9. Chapter 9 talks about 70 weeks of years. 70 sabbaticals. You'll remember that Israel not only had a Sabbath, work six days, have one day that is holy, they had sabbatical years. So they till their ground for six years, and then the seventh year is holy. Daniel's, Daniel 9, the vision of 70 weeks of years, literally 77s, is 70 sabbaticals. 70 units of seven years. So a sabbatical year is every seventh year in the Jewish calendar. So you have 70 of these sabbaticals, or 70 weeks of years. 70 sabbatical years that add up to a total of 490 years. That much is clear. After this, everything gets muddy. (laughs) So, what I want to suggest is that the 70 weeks of years in chapter 9, that climax in the kingdom of God coming to earth, that in these 70 weeks of years, it's, it's telling us the time frame within which all the kingdoms that are mentioned earlier in the book are going to play themselves out, climaxing in the end of the 70th week, when the kingdom of God is to... Sorry, I I chopped off the kingdom of God. How could I have done that? (laughs) So, there's the four kingdoms. Seventy weeks gets us up through here, and it's in the midst of this kingdom that the kingdom of God rises. Okay? But there, there are struggles with interpretation. And we'll see some of that now. I'm going to take us right up till 12.30 today, and I will be done at 12.30. 70 weeks, 70 sabbaticals. Where do we get that? Well, look in chapter 9, verse 24. Here's what we read. 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression. Here, here are these amazing promises that will happen in the 70 weeks following Daniel. 70 weeks of years. Six different things 
the first three curses, the, the curses are going to be, come to an end, and the second three, all blessings that will come about. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. To do what? One, to finish the transgression. Two, to put an end to sin. Three, to atone for iniquity. Four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal both vision and profit. Six, to anoint a most holy place, thing, or one. Seventy weeks are decreed to bring this about. Seventy years. Verses 70 weeks. Look with me at Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. Namely, 70 years. So here's Daniel at the end of the exile, living in Babylon, and he's counting. He's not in a prison cell, you know, etching 70 up on the wall. He's in a palace. Nobility. But where he is is not what he's longing for. He's longing for more. He's longing for the kingdom to be restored. He's longing for Israel to return to their land. Because Jeremiah had promised, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. How long? Seventy years. Then after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king. God had declared a seventy-year time frame. And so Daniel is awakened in the first year of Darius to remember 70 years. It's near. The end is near. And in the midst of this, he begins to pray. And that's what chapter 9 is. It's one of the most beautiful prayers in all the Bible. He prays in light of a problem. So setting one of the 70 sabbaticals or 70 weeks of years Prophecy is, first step, 70 years. Before you can get to the 70 weeks of years, you need to understand that there was part one, stage one was 70 years. Here's setting two. Second thing we have to realize, he's, Daniel begins to pray, and he's praying in the midst of exile, which is about Mosaic covenant curse. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. All of Israel has transgressed your law and turned it aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses have all been poured out upon us. That's where they're living. When he gets the vision of 70 weeks of years... When transgression is going to be overcome, iniquity is going to be addressed, and God will raise up His Messiah, when He gets that vision, it's in the midst of covenant curse. Seventy years, He's tallying it, and that 70-year window was curse of God, the exile, but it was short-term. It was supposed to come to an end at some point. Now look at how Leviticus talks, and then look how Chronicles refers to the great decree. 
I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you, God promises. If you fail to obey me, I'm going to bring judgment on you, Israel. And this is what we've seen happen as we've walked through the history. I will unsheath the sword and your land shall be a desolation and your city shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. The rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. Remember, there's a sabbatical calendar. Every seventh year, Israel is supposed to let the land be at rest. And the exile is going to be as long as one year for every sabbatical year they didn't fulfill. Then Jeremiah comes in and says, 70 years is how long the exile is, which suggests they had 70 sabbatical years that they didn't fulfill. 490 years of not keeping the sabbatical calendar brings about a 70-year exile. Everybody with me? Here's Chronicles now. King Nebuchadnezzar took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land enjoyed its Sabbaths. Everybody tracking? All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, which appears to be equated with the first year of Darius that Daniel is praying... So some people think even Darius and Cyrus are the same person, but it's a little bit tricky. But the first year of King of Cyrus of Persia, the word, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So Daniel is at the end of this time, and he's looking backward and saying, the 70-year judgment is up. And Cyrus, in this same year, I believe, makes the decree that Israel can return to Jerusalem. What we need to see is, one, the 70 years was promised by Jeremiah, and that's what Daniel has on his mind. Two, that what Daniel has in mind is judgment from God. Three is that the 70 years and the decree of Cyrus to let Israel return is only stage one of what was promised would come. Isaiah distinguished two stages in Israel's restoration. The first identified with Cyrus 150 years before Cyrus is even on the scene. God foretells through Isaiah and names the king that will tell Israel they can return. Stage two comes after this. It is I, the Lord, who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. So whatever Cyrus is going to do, it's going to have to do with the physical land of Israel. That's what's on Daniel's mind, I believe. He's expecting at the end of the 70 years, just like Isaiah promised, 
the people that were exiled will now return to the physical place of the land. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level, says Isaiah. He shall build my city, says God through Isaiah, and set my exiles free, not for price or reward. So Cyrus's ministry in stage one is a physical return to the land that's going to focus on the rebuilding of the city and the rebuilding of the temple. But that's only stage one in Isaiah's mind. There is a much greater shepherd, a much greater servant of the Lord, who will do even a greater work than Cyrus. Israel has to get back into the land because Micah has prophesied that the king will come from Bethlehem. But once that king rises, we enter into stage two. And stage two is this, spiritual reconciliation with God by Yahweh's suffering but conquering servant. So when we read in Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks are decreed. Not 70 years, 70 weeks of years, 70 sabbaticals are decreed for bringing about what? For bringing about the end of transgression, the end of sin, atonement for iniquity, everlasting righteousness, to seal both the vision and the prophet, to anoint a most holy thing, person, or place. I think what God is doing for Daniel is just reminding him that Cyrus's decree was not the end. It is a marker. But it's, it was never understood to be all that was expected. Cyrus's decree was stage one in the hope of stage two. And stage two is done by the servant, the suffering servant, the kingly servant, whom we know as Jesus, whose name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, whose government... All the government of the world is upon his shoulders, and whose government and peace will have no end. That king was not Cyrus. And what the 70 weeks prophecy does is get Isaiah's, get Daniel's eyes off of the immediate restoration, which is only physical, to the spiritual restoration that is coming. Intriguingly, that's how our Old Testaments end. Chronicles in Jesus' Bible is the last book. And it puts it right at the end. It puts Cyrus's decree to return to Jerusalem right at the end so that you and I, the reader, can recall Daniel's two stages. Cyrus's decree is only stage one. But what does that do? It gets us right to the end of Jesus' Bible, hoping for the fulfillment of stage two. Not just return to the land, but reconciliation with God. And we turn the page and we read Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, upon whom all the hope has fallen. On this one person who will be the king, the son of David, upon whom all authority in heaven and on earth will, will rest, the ultimate son of man who will be given all the kingdoms of man, to him shall bow down all. Now, I know for certain I can't get through the rest of chapter 9 in the next four minutes. So what I'm going to do is next week we look at the book of Esther, and I'm going to have to fit in 
Daniel 9, because I've already set you up, and I can't say, well, we're not going to do Daniel 9. Um, I've set you up, though, and we'll pick up right here next week, and Lord willing, pick up right here, and probably then also, after I get to the end of Daniel 9, move into the book of Esther. But you've got just a few minutes, questions thus far in this look at Daniel. Daniel 1 starts out with the mention of 70 years. Sorry, not Daniel 1. Daniel 9, verse 1 and 2. 70 years, that's the exile. But then in Daniel 9, 24, it says 70 weeks, 70 sabbaticals, 70 sevens, and that's forward-looking. So it's the distinguishing between 70 years in Daniel 9, 1 and 2, which is stage 1, exile, fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy and the decree of Cyrus. And stage two fulfillment is what's going to happen in the 70 weeks of years beyond Daniel um, to reach the full fulfillment of all that Isaiah anticipated in the suffering servant. Steve. In 924, it includes both the definitive bringing of judgment and the definitive bringing of blessing. So, to establish, it says, everlasting righteousness. To anoint the most holy person or place, which I will at least proposed next week is one and the same. It's the temple, the new temple, Jesus. That it will happen in the 70th week. That in the 70th week, the end has its beginning. Satan's judgment becomes absolutely certain at the cross that in that 70th week, all hope, all blessing is secured. Every promise, both for curse and blessing, finds its yes already in the work of Christ in that 70th week. Now, there are different views. Some think that the 70th week actually doesn't, that there's, you get 69 weeks in counting, and then there's this giant gap, and the 70th week doesn't happen until Christ's second coming. Then there's those that would say, these numbers are all just symbolic, and we don't have to have a strict counting, but Daniel's awakening in Daniel chapter 9, when he's like, 70 years, I need to start praying that God would indeed move like he promised Jeremiah, that suggests to me he's, he's actually calculating time. It's not just general, it's general stuff, but it's actually counting 490 years we have to have a starting point. We have to have an ending point. But within that 70, year, 70 weeks of year window, a 490-year period, ultimately it's the climax of all history and the kingdom of God will indeed have been established. But in, chapter, in Hebrews chapter 
2, what does it say? Though all things have been subjected to the Son, it does not appear to us like they have been. And that's that overlap of the ages that we have to read this in. So, but some, some will say 69 weeks, 69 weeks of years runs, for, that's 483 years. 483 years play, play themselves out, whether literally or symbolically, generally by the time of Christ. And then the 70th week gets stretched out over two millennia. Because Jesus is still doing all this stuff. And I think that we can say in a very real way, even though many things are already, I mean, every, that everything is, this is what I want to say, everything is already, though it's not yet. And to stretch it out, stretch the 70th week out, doesn't make sense to me. That even though things are not consummated, and they will be when Christ returns again, that the 70th week, indeed, everything was definitively accomplished in Christ's first coming. And now we're just waiting to see it all play out. Um, but what we'll work, we're, we're, we will work through that further, Lord willing, beginning of next week. May you rest in the one who is over all, who is truly King of kings and Lord of lords, who has conquered evil and who will indeed put an end to all evil, who has fully triumphed at the cross, disarming all rulers, all authorities, all evil has already been disarmed. Our God reigns. And with that, we find hope in Jesus. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.